Um, so that's Douglas. And um, but you know, when I said that I was going to be interviewing Douglas Copeland, um, a couple of people said, "Oh, that's fantastic! I love the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy." <laughs> <laughs> And it did make me wonder, did you ever meet Douglas Adams? Uh, once in Germany, and, but when I arrived here at the airport four nights ago during that crazy windstorm, I filled out my form and there's this woman, she's maybe like honestly 21 or something, and she's passed my documents over, like, oh, you're a writer. I'm like, do you write under a pseudonym? <laughs> 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 Fame at last. <laughs> um, I'd like to talk about Generation X um, only because I, I got a copy, um, which was handy. Uh, uh, I bought a new one because my old one was so wrecked. And um, uh, there, it, it, it was and still is such a great book. But I wonder, did you know when you were writing that it would be such a phenomenon, such a success? Oh, God, no. I mean, I honestly thought... I mean, from the start of me even thinking of writing to the point where I just moved out in the desert and began to write that, it was only 18 months. That's all it ever was. Ah. And, uh, I mean, when you're young, and by young, I'm going to say under 30, you have this thing that nature gives you. I call it a protective, clueless coding that makes you not realize just how big the gambles you're taking really are. Ah. And I think just as I finished the book, my clueless coding wore off, thank God. Um, I, I wanna, a friend of mine in, in Canada, Susan Musgrave, she's a poet and a close friend, and she told me about this word. It, it's called sonder or sondering, S-O-N-D-E-R. And it's a word like wonder, like, like let's, that's wondrous, or I'm wondering. And, but if you're sondering, what it is, is you start to think about, you're in a room, say with all of us here, and you look at every person in the room, and then you realize that each of these people has an inner life that's as weird and fucked up and screwed up as my own life, and then, and then like, oh my God, it becomes too big to like deal with, <laughs> then you go back inside your own self again. And, uh, it's, I can't imagine who would be able to be saunderous their entire waking life, mm -hmm. uh, but a little of it goes a long way. And, and I think, I was... You're saying that that 18 months was a period of unsondering? Well, suddenly, yeah, I'd never really thought of people. Uh, uh, when, I was, when I'd just finished writing the book, I was living in Montreal on like $1.95 a day, and I'd go on the subway and go back and forth, and I'd look at people and try and figure out what their secret crime was. Because <laughs> we've all got one. Which is? Okay. Uh, maybe, uh, yeah. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm actually doing the interview here, so. Okay. Um, Thank you. Uh, but um, maybe later when I've written my book. Um, there, there's, there's a lovely quote that you said, I remember spending my days almost dizzy with loneliness and feeling like I'd sold the family cow for three beans. Yeah. I suppose it was this crippling loneliness that gave Gen X its bite. I was trying to imagine a life for myself on paper that certainly wasn't happening in reality. Yeah. Well, we were in Montreal, so it was probably cold, and these, well, they were in the desert for a start. Well, no, well, I wrote it in the desert, but I moved to Montreal afterwards. There was a, I submitted it to the publisher, and there was silence for about three weeks. And 
no news is bad news in publishing. Mm. And see, something obviously happened. And uh, so the editorial department said they didn't want to do it and they didn't like it. And I can take rejection and I'm, I'm fine. But it was those kids down in the mailroom that said, no, you have to do this book. Right. And thank you, kids. <laughs> um, but so it came out a, at least half a year later than it should have. And I had no revenue coming in. And that's how I ended up in Montreal. Right. And uh, it's a very sad, sweet moment. It was the, Uh, it was the Kuwait War, which is what, December two, 19, 2000, December 2000. Mm -hmm. Sorry, I've never thought of things like this before. Okay. It was all a surprise, I'll say that. Yeah. Sorry, go on. Get, getting published was a hell of a surprise. Well, there was no Generation X back then. There, there was nothing. Communism was over. I remember looking at the cover of the LA Times at the, the delicatessen one morning and like, communism over. And <laughs> like, what, I, grew up, I, I was born on a Canadian Air Force base in Germany precisely yeah. because of the Cold War. And then this boogeyman that had been in the closet my entire life was suddenly gone. There's no more boogeyman. Mm. But there was nothing else to replace it either. Mm. And that was around the time that Francis Fukushima... Fukushima. So I'm, I'm blending uh, 21st century news with 20th century news. Francis Fukuyama um, was saying that uh, history was over. That it was the end of history. The, yeah, yeah. the full inflection of liberal uh, democracy was the end, end point. Yeah. And... Uh, 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 there, was, there was no young British art, there was no grunge, there was nothing. And, and I, I felt myself, I've got to create some sort of universe I could live in. Mm. Because the, the one I was in was just not working anymore. It's you know? achingly sad, isn't it? Uh, the, this, you, you have this word, futurelessness, which really struck, mm. struck me. I, I, uh, can I get you to read just a little bit of um, misery from the, sure. the book? Yeah, let, let's revel in it, shall we? Um, so th this is a, a scene in which um, Dag is talking to Andy, uh, the, two or the two of the main, three main protagonists, and Dag is trying to cheer Andy up to say, at least your parents aren't as shit as mine. And um, if you can see my scribbles, okay. could you read from where it says, at least, okay. and then just, just to the end of the chapter, you'll have to turn it. I've handily bent, bent the page for you. Okay. Well, it, at least your parents talk about big things. I try and talk about things like nuclear issues that matter to me with my parents. And it's like I'm speaking Bratislavan. They, they listen indulgently to me for an appropriate length of time. And then after I'm out of wind, they ask me why I live in such a God-forsaken place like the Mojave Desert and how my love life is. I mean, give parents the tiniest of competences, and they'll use them as crowbars to jimmy you open and rearrange your life with no perspective. <laughs> Sometimes I'd like to mace them. I want to tell them that I envy their upbringings and that they were so clean, so free of futurelessness. 
I want to throttle them for blithely handing over the world to us like so much skid-marked underwear. I remember writing that, actually. Oh, yeah. Wow. Oh, okay. Awesome. That is that um, oh, fantastic. Okay, okay. Um, yeah. You know, just, mm. I, I just, and, and it did make me think that there must have been a little bit of autobiography, autobiographical element to that, because oh. your dad was a military doctor. He probably was the clean, organised guy. Well, 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 he was, he was a, a, he put himself through med school flying fighter jets. I mean... That's pretty... I mean, kind of cool, isn't it? A oh, it's, student job. It's, uh, it's very, very sweeping cool. Sweeping the factory or flying uh, flight jet. I mean, we, we were very different in many ways, but what I definitely got from him, he died about two and a half years ago, was, you're here, what are you doing? Like, you're only here once. Like, how are you going to make the most of it? Uh, and don't define it in terms of productivity or numbers. Like, you know, are you really here? And uh, I think there's... Uh, I mean, I think one of the slogans that sort of defines the present moment is like, I really wish I was here. <laughs> and, uh, and so I've always, I've always tried to fight that sense of wishing I was here my entire life. Yeah. And uh, 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 there's a question before that was, we got sidetracked. What was the, before that? Oh, future, oh li futurelessness. Okay. Yeah. Well, if you go back a thousand years, there actually there wasn't even a word for the future. I don't even. I'm not sure when the future was invented. I mean, it really is an, an artificial thing. Because mm -hmm. if you lived in a mud hut a thousand years ago, you. Why would you ever assume that your children or their children, their life would be any different from your own? Mm. So, I guess it gets into, I guess the creation of time and industrialism and. With a clock, you homogenize time. You turned it into hours and seconds, and mm -hmm. it became something you could manipulate. Uh, uh, and then, going back to the 1990s, um, and I do think we will look back at the 1990s as the last good decade. And that's just not nostalgia from someone who's now got a gray beard. Uh, but it'll be 100 years before we have that kind of blank space again. It, you called it your, um, what was it, your pre-internet brain, didn't you? you well, a, yeah. You made a, a poster about that. Well, it wasn't a poster. What happened? Um, about 10 years ago now, in Vancouver, these friends had a nightclub called the, the Waldorf. And uh, we wanted to do some kind of event. And it was just the time when YouTube was sort of happening. So we had YouTube with Doug Knight. And we had about maybe that many people and... A monitor hooked up to a live feed, and people would shout out, shout out things to look for, or what have you. And well, we got to do posters for this. And uh, okay, well, okay, let me think of things that make sense now, but wouldn't have made sense to someone from 20 years before. And uh, and they used this font in the posters called Knockout, which is used in the boxing world with fat and thin letters so that uh -huh. can stretch the names out as they go down the bill. And the, the first one I did was probably the one that has the most legs, but it was like, I miss my pre-internet brain. <laughs> and I, well, that was 10 years ago. I really don't remember my pre-internet brain. Yeah, I was going to ask, what, which is what was even it like? scarier. <laughs> well, um, well, before I came on stage tonight, I was in the green room, and like, whoop, I entered the hole, and it was looking whatever, it came back out. Uh, 
I guess you're always sort of bungeeing into this sort of inner world, which mm-hmm. is also the outer world at the same time. Um, I, I back one thousand years ago, when your forebears lived in a mud hut or whatever, um, they probably got three dopamine hits a day, and maybe one adrenaline hit if they got chased by an animal or something. Mm-hmm. And we get thousands of dopamine hits a day now. Every it's time, like, but like we all know that we all know that feeling. And what what I think is the bigger issue here is that it's really destroyed our sense of time and time's passage. Uh-huh. And that, uh, like, oh my God, it's like we're almost in June. What the hell happened to 2019? I mean, where did it go? <coughs> Excuse me. Um, I put this joke thing on Twitter on January 3rd. It's like oh my God, it's January 3rd already. Time is going by so quickly. <laughs> uh, but I, I think we've sort of entered this weird, dangerous, uh, neurologically based sense of destroyed time. And I, I think, you know, if, there's a, if this is a movie playing in the future and the audience is looking at us, they're saying like, stop it, stop it. You can still save your sense of time. Right. Um, Perhaps we need time museums or something. Well, that's a good idea. Can I have it? Yeah. Okay, thank you. Yeah. And we have witnesses. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I agreed to it. Um, that, the, the gap that existed between the boomers or, you know, kind of Dag's parents and, and Dag and Andy, oh. it wasn't new in some ways. I mean, the generation gap was supposed to be a kind of 60s phenomenon, right? So the boomers mm. experienced it against their pre-war parents and now millennials no. are experiencing it well, with their Gen X parents. Did you watch Mad Men? Yeah. Who here watched Mad Men? Okay, it's a great show. Yeah. Um, there's a, near the final seasons, suddenly out of nowhere, these things called hippies. Like, what the hell? Where did they come from? Yeah. And the only way they could make sense of it was to write, well, there's been all this TV, and the TV obviously had some role in the creation of the hippie. And then... Uh, by the time it came to X, whatever X is, there are a lot more insidious, harder to determine factors that created a collective psyche. Mm-hmm. But then with millennials, it's like, not even what the hell, what the fuck, like, where, how did they happen? How did this happen? And of course, it's the internet. And uh, uh, imagine living in a perpetual present. Imagine never having had a past mm. that from the crash onward, your life has been one relentless dopamine hit. And uh, yes, you're very different from your parents. You're very different from people 10 years uh, uh, behind you. In, in China, they have these terms for generations. Um, born in the 80s, born in the 90s, born in the thousands, born in the, the teens. Because uh, they went, you know, they went from mud huts to uh, 5G in 25 years, yeah, and and they seem perfectly prepared to go further faster, uh, but they're so different from decade to decade that there's almost it's impossible to communicate between mm-hmm. the two uh, mm-hmm. groups. So you know, generations are kind of fake and bullshitty, but they're actually kind of real too, and um, uh, and that's something I've actually come to appreciate grudgingly. 
since that thing came out in March 1991. Right. Yeah. Because that, you know, that thing, he means this, um, it, it, it defines... Did, did you invent the, the term Generation X or was it something kicking around marketing no, it's departments? Bill, well, no, Billy Idol had the name Generation X and just seemed like apropos. There's this one writer, um, uh, Paul Fussell, F-U-S-S-E-L-L, and he died like, two years ago. And he wrote about uh, class and the, the American class structure. Mm -hmm. uh, and he, in like riveting detail, he was very, very accomplished. But what if you went off this sort of class merry-go-round? He, and he postulated an X class, which to me sounded um, like a nice sort of plan B, an escape hatch. So mm -hmm. I think that's what drove ultimately the mm. name in the end. Yeah, well, you, you obviously hit upon something, didn't you? Yeah, but, the, yeah. but one of the things that's been said about you is, you know, for a slacker, uh, you... You know what? For, for, for someone that has defined the slacker generation, you exhibit none of the characteristics of a slacker. So he works okay. seven days a week with no vacations. Copeland is quoted as saying, I've never taken a holiday. To lie on a beach someplace seems almost sinful. What's the point of being around unless you're working on something? That's... Um, you, you sound um, like a, a little bit like a, uh, like your dad, probably. Yeah, I mean, um, uh, I went to... Uh, Just ignore them. We're uh, heading okay. into therapy now. Well, one thing I will say is um, I was born on December 30th, and so whenever I went to school in Vancouver, I was always the youngest person in the class. And when I went to high school, I was the youngest person out of 1,200 people, and I was, like, terrifyingly skinny. I, uh, just like, you look at me and wonder, oh my God, he's gonna die at any moment, I was so skinny. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I came from this family of mesomorphs, and all I wanted to do was gain weight. And I, my friend, Stuart Learmouth and I, we get like a 32-slice lo, lo, loaf of Wonder Bread, a tub of Bacill margarine, and 64-pack of Kraft Singles, and eat them in that teenage way that only teenagers can eat them. <laughs> and I couldn't gain an ounce. And this is actually going somewhere. And so um, <laughs> then I, I graduated, and then I went to Montreal for this one very misguided year. Uh, so I, I'd been, in, well, my survival tactic was being smart. Okay, uh, that, and I was smart enough in school. You just test, you figure out how they work, and you do it. Mm -hmm. But I got to McGill and Montreal, and I realized I don't have to be smart anymore. I'm free. And I just stopped going to class, and I got my first C plus and a D, and it, was, it really was narcotic. And, <laughs> and I mean, talk about that youthful, clueless co I, uh, coding. Mm -hmm. I knew I wasn't going back in the fall. I mean, uh, uh, and I bumped into my high school art teacher, uh, Jeanette Andrews, and she was like, oh, why they've just opened that new art school down on Granville Island. Oh, yeah. I think today's application day. Like, boom, I was down there and I applied and I got in. And I loved art school. The first time in my life I felt like I am where I'm supposed to be. Right. And then in third year, I did the school paper. I had my studio area to work in. Uh, by acclamation, we got in as student council, two friends of mine. And, and it really worked. And later in life, you know, especially after 2000, I realized, you know, model your life after that. 
you know, you had all these various parts of your brain working at full speed, and it was obviously very satisfying. Um, and so it's not so much about being productive all the time or working, working, working. It's mm -hmm. about, I, you know, have I saundered enough today? Have I really thought about other people? Um, <laughs> you know, have you thought about your, like, have you, Oh God, it always gets back to productivity, but have you maxed yourself out? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This other question, um, I said, when you're having an argument with yourself, you know, you know, like, should I buy that or not? Or who's actually having the argument? Like, like who, who are these two entities in your head? And is there a third one? Is there a fourth one? <laughs> and that's kind of a drug question, but okay, I'll stop. <clears throat> yes. But you, will, you, you write leave, a story okay. about, um, uh, it's a very short story in, in Bitrot about um, people are, um, are trapped and so their souls escape, right? They're trapped in some sort of future city where they can't escape and, and their souls make an escape. Well, what if your soul could leave your body and say, you know what, I'm just, I'm through with you. Yeah. And I'm going to go hang out, <laughs> I'm going to go hang out with other souls and, well, wait, then what's this thing that's left behind? Mm -hmm. And... Uh, there, there's sentience without transcendence, or, um, you know, what makes anyone anyone, I guess. I, um, I mean, I, I, um, I mean, after having not done books for quite a while, I'm doing this one right now, which is about, um, uh, well, religion, but, uh, about God, but um, through secular lenses, in a way that's hopefully, you know, has some spirit to it as well. Um, so, actually, I was in Texas three weeks ago um, doing research for it, and I went to the, the Fort Worth gun show. And it's a good place to see uh, religion at work. Well, I, 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 wanted the, I wanted like hate literature. I wanted the full, full meal deal. And there's 1,400 individual vendors. And, and it's massive. It goes on forever. Uh, cameras not allowed. Like, hmm. Uh, some really <laughs> scary stuff. And honestly, if they stop making guns right now, there's 2,000 years worth of guns out there. It's just... Uh, mm -hmm. These people are never going to change their minds. They're, they're not convertible. They're, you know, most... Well, that just gets up to the present, doesn't it? And sort of like the hyper-polarization of everything. Mm -hmm. Okay, I'm really now going to shut up. I, okay. okay, but yeah. it's um, apropos um, Life After God, which was the, your, your uh, collection of short stories. You, mm. You're... For a um, someone who's come out of a, I, I don't know, it's not fair to call you a cyberpunk, but you know, a, a, a kind of a post-Christian, post-religious world you mm -hmm. describe in Gen X, um, you're you're actually you're not afraid to talk about God or religion, right? It's you're um, you're you seem to be quite comfortable and. Well, I don't mind it. A lot of people really don't want to, mm. and that's fine. Um, but when you talk about God, you're, you're talking about a lot of things sort of bundled into one super bundle. Yeah, um, it's handy like that. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, it's like a, he's like a generation, isn't he? Anyhow, um, so yeah, I don't mind talking about religion. 
Did life, you, you got quite a lot of criticism for life after God, I think, because um, your second book, which was um, after Generation X, was... Well, that was Shampoo Planet, which yeah. went unedited, which is its big problem. But, but uh, Shampoo Planet is basically, I think we talked about this briefly beforehand, it's millennials, like, written in 1992. It's, right. it, it, oh, oh. The only thing it doesn't have is avocado toast. I mean, it's, right. it's, it, it, it's really all there. I'd never thought of it that way until someone told me a few weeks ago. And yeah. it's like, okay, well, yeah. there's that. Yeah. Um, and then Life After God, it's actually the one that like, people really love and protect. And uh, certainly of all the books, it, it, it's like the top three that endures. Mm -hmm. So, I mean... What we, else is in that three? Uh, oh, X, uh, Hey Nostradamus, uh, would be the three of them. Mm -hmm. uh, Not player one? Uh, that was... Um, no, but that's... Don't, don't, don't derail me. Right, okay. sorry. Don't, let, don't let me derail focus. myself. <laughs> Hang on. Uh, no, we're stuck in this thing called time, and when something comes out, <laughs> it's not necessarily the right time for it. And so some, sometimes you have to wait 10, 20 years for something to find its time. Yeah. I think that's just what happened with um, uh, Life After God, certainly, mm -hmm. and uh, apparently now Shampoo Planet. So it's the long game, I guess. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> I better check on the time. What do we got? Oh, heaps time. Great. Okay. Um, I want to talk about some of your art because, um, you know, in addition to being a, a novelist, um, you know, you produce a lot of art, you're, yeah. you're prodigious. And, and you know, maybe again, we could, we could come back to it. So I, I don't know if everyone can see the format of this book is, is a bit weird. Yeah, it's a, a kind of landscape, or is it perfectly square? No, it's ever so slightly yeah. uh, landscape. And it's full of uh, slogans and little uh, homilies and uh, yeah. lots of little um, sort of pop art cartoonish yeah. uh, things. That some, what, what, how on earth did you sell that to the publisher? Um, what were you thinking? <laughs> You're a former publisher, aren't you? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, it was St. Martin's Press in New York, and, and then they, uh, how can we be generous about this? They're kind of list. <laughs> Not anymore. You know, I was just so happy to get it published. Um, I, I think they wanted something more like a, a Sloan Ranger handbook. I don't know if you heard of that. Mm -hmm. And I, I wasn't going to do that. Um, uh, but that was 1991. And then in 93, I began working at Wired down in San Francisco. And it was like a wonderful place to be at like the magic time in its yeah. history. Yeah. And um, with Kevin Kelly. Kevin Kelly was there, and with right? um, all the original crew, and um, and the internet was very very new back then. And I, I would do, and I, well, there's the internet, but there was no content. I mean, Kevin, like, show me something, anything. Like, okay, let's go here, and it's like a black and white weather map of Northern California, Oregon, Southern Washington. Uh, what's that? I, it's a, it's a real-time map of weather over the northern California coast. Like, okay, like, uh, how often does it refresh? Like every six hours. 
<laughs> that is not real time. I don't know what that is, but that is not real time. Um, and so I would go to these book tours, and uh, we had to, what is the internet going to look like? Uh, and so for the 90s, everything I did uh, was blogs or tour diaries or imagery that uh, you go through a city and I'd save up things during the day, then I'd compile them into a collage. And then I had to FedEx that to my office in Vancouver, and they'd chop it up, scan the little bits together, put them together. So it took three days before something could actually go online. And, and the file sizes were laughable. They were like 800 pixels right. by 400 yeah. pixels or something. Yeah. Um, and then there's this place called Prelinger.org, and they had a bot that went through websites back in the... Uh, uh, late 20th century, and they just archived everything they found. Mm -hmm. And it's a, uh, it's a wonderful place to lose a lot of time, if you want to lose a bit of time. Uh, but I think by 2000, I was going crazy. If I didn't do something that was actually material, I was going to go nuts. Mm -hmm. and so that, that was the big change in my mind, I think. Okay. Yeah. And, and what was your first piece, can you recall? Oh, boy. Oh, it was... Um, uh, my ongoing love affair with plastics. Uh, it was uh, disfigured soldier pieces, like the green ones you get, except they're blown up very, very large. And, uh, uh, and actually, I kept one for myself. And, and people look at them now and they say, oh, you just scanned a figure and blew it up. I'm like, no. <laughs> you have no idea what went into that. Um, uh, and then for, for, I did a lot of work on Canadian identity. And it was just... If you're not Canadian, you really don't care, so I won't go into it here. Mm -hmm. But th there was a sense you that could try us. there was a sense that Canadian identity was all wrapped up in 1976 at the Montreal Olympics uh -huh. or something, and and nothing I was being told about being Canadian actually made any sense or overlapped onto my life, and so I began. That. You'd never guess you're Canadian with that jacket. I oh, I know, I know. It, it, um, it, I got a lot of, I was going to get flack whenever I do something like, ah, it's dumb or whatever. And then five years later, it's like, oh, no, no, right. Yeah. <laughs> like, why can't you people be nicer? Um, it, it, that project finished itself quite neatly about 10 years later. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, when you, I, anyone here as an artist knows you do a body of work and then suddenly it's just over. And that was a 10-year project, really. What do they say? Art is abandoned, never finished? Say that again? But art is never finished, only ever abandoned. Oh. That's kind of dark. Yeah. I like, uh, uh, well, I thought it was true. Okay. <laughs> um, you spent... a. a, a some ill-fated time in Japan. Oh, ill-fated? No, I love Japan. Oh, well, it said that you, you know, the, the internet said that you were there, you got sick, and then you came home. No, I didn't get sick. I went to school there, and I went back to work there, and I'd never been in Tokyo during the summer, and which is incredibly humid, and it was, the air was a lot worse there than, than it is now. Uh -huh. And my skin, my back especially, uh, I literally couldn't be there anymore. Uh, well, so I've still got, was, ma I got massive scarring all over my back from right. that. And um, so I had to leave. And I spent a large part of my life aiming to live there and work there and do everything there. And it was just sort of taken away from me. And suddenly I was back. I'd lost two years of my life. And I was, uh. 
living in this a tiny apartment in Vancouver, and I just, a job that was actually really good, it was designing baby cribs. And it's as weird as it sounds. <laughs> and uh, half, I can actually watch, I've designed half the baby cribs on planet Earth. I don't get any money from it, but uh, I got this gig, uh, a company called Storkcraft. Long, they've changed owners many times now. And they had these, like, why the hell not just call them? And, uh, and they'd actually never had someone phone them and say, like, they might want to help with design work or do something there. Uh-huh. And there were these, like, these pea soup green cribs with, like, evil clown stickers on them. And shit. And they're, <laughs> oh, they're just like, I was like, what is wrong with you people? No, you need a good clean white pine one. You need a good, like, white spindle crib, a dark wood, da 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 da. And sort of went, like, gapified their, their line. Uh-huh. And, and it wasn't, you know, brain surgery. It was, uh, mm. and I got to learn about union politics, uh, g- uh, government standards for toxicity in spray booths, um, how you source wood, how you go to trade fairs. It was a fantastic education, but at the time it was happening, all the friends I'd gone to art school with were making a big splash in, as painters locally, and I just felt like the fifth Beatle or something. And, yeah. uh, that was very... That was, that was bittersweet, but when I was in Tokyo, before my back went crazy, um, I'd sent, this is the creation story, it's basically true. I'd sent uh, the wife of a friend uh, a postcard, which is the internet of 1987. <laughs> and, and she put it out, face out on her fridge with a magnet. And they were having a party and a local magazine editor read the postcard and said, oh, this guy should write for us. Mm. So he called me like, what? Uh, like, why not give it a shot? And so... Uh, three days later, I was down in Beverly Hills writing this story about this scoundrel in the art world who would fleece people out of... It's a long story, but... A long story to tell, but it was like three days to write. And it was a lot of fun, and I got the... Magazines had this thing back then that magazines don't have now called money. And... And I got this great big juicy check for like having fun, enjoying myself, expanding my universe. And with that one check, I could pay all my studio bills and have something left over. Yeah. It was kind of shocking. Yeah. But from that first story to like desert, 18 months, it was that quick. Right. Yeah. So, one, you know, one of the things that um, I'm sure that all writers, and there'll be many people in this room that have struggled with this. Um, Decision to to become poor because yeah. you you gotta you gotta be jobbing to you know pay for oh. all the crap. It's and, yeah. but you do need time to as you say no. you know you, to to do art to do writing you need time you need you need to oh. let it uh, it's a, a sonder is that the word that you uh, well I mean we've all just collectively shattered our own senses of time. So time, finding time to write now is very different than it was 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. And where do you find that sense of quiet or that sense of uh, being away from the world? 
it's really hard now. Mm. And it's usually in the morning. Um, but you don't always get it. It's getting hard, much harder, much harder to find that. Mm. And then if you talk to people and like, you know, after the third drink, they'll confess, like, I don't really read much anymore. And which is another thing about books. As a former publisher, you know that book publishing is always on the verge of extinction. Mm. Starting in 1991, there were superstores, there was the death of the independent, there was Amazon, what the hell is that? Uh, then there's the decline of the high street, and then it was uh, Kindles and this and that. There's always something about to kill publishing. So I, I called Anne, my friend in Toronto. So Anne, what's killing publishing now? Oh, that's easy, binge viewing. And binge viewing really is hurting publishing because mm -hmm. most adults, they have like 60 to 90 minutes of discretionary time at the end of the day. And they're sitting there, this great big pile of like paper or this like shiny musical thing called Netflix. And Netflix is for the moment winning. Mm. Uh, Ebooks were really, when they came out, there was just so much quaking with fear in publishing because they thought it would kill the book altogether. And then it only plateaued at a certain percentage of a certain kind of book, and that's mm. all it ever became. Uh, but there's that kind of sky is falling mentality in publishing always. Yeah. And sort of with writing too. And, and yeah. art, the same, do you think? Uh, art's at a very strange moment right now. Um, uh, I, I don't know how much you know about the art world, but they're... Um, <laughs> Um, there are these things called biennales, where every two years the city brings out art and artists. There used to be three or four, and now there's hundreds of them. And then mm -hmm. there were art fairs where people go early to get special things by, you know, and those who worn themselves out. And then Donald Trump changed this law called the 1031 law, which uh, art was no longer uh, uh, tax, oh, uh, what do you call it? Uh, Exempt or oh, God. deductible? Th this is how it starts, Doug. <laughs> um, when there's no capital gains tax, that was it. Right. Okay. Okay. Uh, and the moment we're big fans of that uh, around here. Uh, okay. <laughs> so the moment they got rid of that, art, the art world just stopped, and it's never it. And you realize how much the art world was about flipping, flipping yeah. upwards. And mm -hmm. once the flipping stopped. Whenever people buy art now, it means they're actually really buying art. Mm. They're not out to flip, etc. But it's had a massive impact on the lives of so many visual art artists out there. Mm -hmm. um, so usually in life, there's some cultural trend and there's something like brazenly mercantile, in this case, the 1031 law right. that conspired to... But, but have you reached a stage now where, you know, you're, you're, you're so famous and so fabulous that um, people come to you or is there still this, this, this struggle? What does hmm. it feel like to be successful? I'd love to know. <laughs> um, I mean, uh, uh, it, 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 is that, I think it's a cartoon. It, it's, um, it, it's like, I think it's like it's a cat sitting at a desk wearing like a tie like this. And it has, I think I'll buy a boat. Um, I think I didn't tell that properly. Anyhow, um, <laughs> I don't know, like what. What else would you be doing? I mean, mm, like, yeah. I, of course, uh, 
Which comes back to father issues, I guess, again, too. But, uh, <laughs> you know, think about it. Like, like, like the Hubble telescope released a map showing 265 million <clears throat> separate like, galaxies, let alone stars. And then what if life is the only thing that exists only here out of all the, and then even then here, it's just us here in the, and that's such a rare, mm -hmm. I mean, we could be the only manifestation of this in the universe. And so you kind of have a responsibility. I feel like mm -hmm. I have a responsibility yep. to uh, figure that out. Uh, or, or to maybe just turn Netflix off just oh, this once. Okay. There's this series called Black Summer. Has anyone here watched it? No. I think it's just come on Netflix. It's okay. great. It's a zombie apocalypse. And I was having a discussion with someone in the film industry about 12 years ago. And I wrote about this. Um, and I said the future of uh, entertainment is zombie movies. And I'm like, well, why is that? Because all it takes to make someone a zombie is like, it's like almost no makeup, there's no anything. <laughs> They're inherently terrifying, and, and all you have to do is run and maybe fight a few of them. I was right. Yeah. Okay. Well, there you go. <laughs> okay. Excellent. Um, a big theme that runs through a lot of your writing and also your art is your concern for the environment. Yeah. Um, and you've got this wonderful exhibition on at the moment in Vancouver. I'll just read yeah. uh, a little description of it. It's called Vortex. Is, a vortex is staged in a large tank formerly inhabited by manta rays. The main work is in the exhibition consists of a small Japanese fishing vessel bobbing up and down in a, in a plastic debris-choked water. And, sorry, the yeah. wrong, wrong comma. In a, in a plastic debris-choked water. The boat installation is surrounded by small, smaller exhibits include inside fish tanks as well as three huge shelves displaying a mind-boggling collection of plastic junk. Mm. Now, some of that plastic, I think, if I understand it right, had washed up from Fukushima well, onto the shores of yeah. BC, right? So, okay, I, I, I collect plastics. In, in 1999, in Tokyo, I bought about 2,000 bucks worth of mostly shampoo and household cleaning products and uh, rinsed them out and flushed the contents down the toilet. And before you go start judging me, <laughs> ask yourself, would it been okay to flush it down if you mixed in some dirt and shit or something. Right. <laughs> then it becomes morally okay. Yep. So it was, it was going in Tokyo Harbor anyways. So I brought this back and put it in shells and lived with it in Vancouver. And then uh, I went north, this place called Haida Gwaii, which I think people here would probably uh, identify with quite closely. It's formerly called the Queen Charlotte Islands, but that's not anymore. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, and I go there two, three times a year and stay with friends up in the North Coast. And in 2000, the tsunami was 13, and I was there in 16. And I'm standing on this beach uh, on Rose Spit. I'm like, what a great day. Yes, sir, nothing could possibly go wrong on a beautiful day like today. And I look down, and like one of the exact same kind of bottles that I'd been buying in Tokyo, like washed up at my feet. And it was just as chilling. I, I felt like I was the receiving end of some medieval curse or something. Mm -hmm. And then, so then, uh, got involved with tsunami cleanup up there. And the Japanese government had been really terrific. They gave just tons of money to people to help clean it up. Uh, and, but 
and we had these expeditions that would go out in these coves where honestly, if you don't get the swells and the waves and the weather and the light and the tide and the this, probably no one's been in there for decades. In this one cove, we found this uh, US Navy life raft, like this, honestly about the size of this stage here, green, yeah. and there were these cans of water dated January 1967, uh -huh. and we all took them as souvenirs. Um, and we found a Japanese fishing boat that had washed up, which wow. is the one that's in the tank. Okay. And I'm 57, I did not expect to be doing environmental art at this point in my life. Yeah. It just happened, yeah. I think. It's, uh, but now that's happened, it's like really kicked in, I think, mm. in a big way. You um, have, a, one of the slogans I saw, I had to read it really, I think I've got it. It was a picture of a, of a fence with a whole lot of your slogans oh, on it. Center for Architecture. Okay, and one of them says, God is giving us global warming to show us that he loves us. Um, I was in Montreal a week Please ago. Please expand. Oh, I, was I was there a week ago today, and uh, it was the Center for Architecture that is, did a show. Uh, it was called It's All Happening Far, Far Faster Than We Thought. Technically, it's far more quickly than we thought, but it's a slogan. Um, and it is a number of statements about you know, agree or disagree about ecology. So, um, uh, uh, healthy people are bad for capitalism. Uh, lonely, depressed people consume more. Like, Hi, I'm that margarine tub, tub you threw out in 1982. Like, hi, I'm that useless trip to Europe you took uh, last April. Uh, <laughs> hi, I'm that scary shit underneath the, the sink with, uh, in the garage. Uh, um, jet, lag was, jet lag was kind of romantic. Just things that make you question most everyday things mm. and make you realize just how wrong we are on so many levels. At the same time, one tries to be entertaining. So, is that? Yeah. There. Well, I love this phrase that you, uh, I, I think I got it from the little video about Vortex that, that they've made. It's a gorgeous video, and if, yeah. if anyone gets a chance to see that um, on, on Douglas's uh, webpage, that place in Canada, um, I'll, I'll get the pronunciation wrong, Haida Gwaii. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's an amazing place, right? It's just as gorgeous. Well, I mean, having been to the West Coast here just a few days ago, it's like, it's right. got competition from you guys. Yeah. Uh, but it's the same sense of everything is being larger and mythological. And there's obviously this sense of very, very deep sense of spirituality that comes mm. from... Where does, where does it come from anywhere? There it's nature, as mm. it is here. And, uh, you know, the, the last, it's the one place we haven't quite managed to screw up. You yeah. know, we, we, just, we got saved it just in time, I think. Right. Yeah. Although, as, as you're dragging this humongous piece of polystyrene out of, of, of the rocks. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if you say it just then, but in, in the video it says... <clears throat> I started working with plastics, they're all shiny and happy, yeah. but the punchline is that plastics are a mess. And we're kind of inheriting, in some ways, our fascination with technology. It's coming back to bite us in, in the same way, right? Oh, that yeah. we're losing time. Uh, okay, this is going to sound really weird, but three days ago I found out that on the South Island, on the West Coast, there was a flood and then it went through a landfill that had been closed, I think, in the mid-60s. Yeah. 
And the headline was like, you know, people cleaning up were like weeping. And I was like, I would love to see the stuff that came out of that. You know, like, wow, what a chance at uh, urban archaeology, what a chance at mm -hmm. sort of like, uh, you know, the anthropology of 60 years ago. Uh, I think we're actually doing, we've made a collective change when it comes to plastics in the ocean, I think. I mean, I'm just old enough to remember littering. I remember being at Super Valley with my mom and she was like smoking. Yes, yeah, she was smoking and then she'd drop a cigarette and like grind it out with her heel. And like, that doesn't seem like something's wrong here. Yeah. <laughs> and people just throw litter out their car. And then one day it just all stopped. Mm -hmm. And uh, now it seems ridiculous, like mm -hmm. spittoons or something. Like, why do we think that was okay? But uh, the thing about landfills is that they're everywhere. And this just basically mummifies everything that's in them. They're anaerobic, so nothing rots. And the yeah. newspapers are still the same quality as they were the day they were published. Mm -hmm. And so that, on the South Island, that's... Uh, Missed opportunity. <laughs> right. okay. I love your optimism.